And unlike drugs and alcohol, the effect of spiritual practices, the effects of transformational work, the effects of, you know, introspective work, it doesn't wear off and I don't get arrested. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share today's inspirational guest with you. Mark Crandall, LMSW, LCDC, is a transformational life and business coach, workshop facilitator, keynote speaker, author of Eulogy of Childhood Memories, and the host of Purpose Chasers Podcast. Mark went from a lost boy with countless traumatic experiences to drug addiction, prison, and an undying self-hatred to building a multiple six-figure coaching practices and leading life-changing workshops where he empowers others to break free from their limiting beliefs towards creating the lives of their dreams. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. It is great to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming, man. It is, um, every time I hear somebody read my bio, I'm just kind of like, wow. You know, it's just like one of those moments where I'm like, yeah. I, I came from there and now I'm here. So it's great to be here. It's great to know you. Likewise, you know, we had a really cool connection and it was just kind of one of these instant, we got each other and just were really excited about what each other is doing. So having you on the show to share your story is so exciting. And we teased it a little bit in the intro, but I want to jump right into it because you know, there's we've, when we talked previously, you talked about how you know, so many times kids who went through what you went through wind up with their lives totally derailed forever. But you are now out there in the world making a difference every single day. But talk about when you were young and talk about some of these things that you went through that really shaped these experiences moving forward. Yeah. So I mean as as you read in my bio, so I was, you know, taken by DCYF at the age of three and I was placed into foster care. And there was a lot of trauma for my sister and I, who's two years my elder, and she was placed in the same foster home as I was. Just a lot of confusion, you know, as, as a youth, not really knowing what was going on with my biological family, like why I was in this part-time family or replacement family, if you will. I just had a lot of confusion. And although it was explained to me very, very well by my adopted family, I just didn't understand. And, and there was... If you haven't experienced it, it's, it is difficult to explain. There was this longing throughout my youth to know my biological parents. And I felt like the older that I got, the more I really, truly wanted to know them and everything. And I wanted to know everything about them. And I just wanted everything to go back to the way that it looked like, that it looked on TV. Right. So, you know, when you would, when I would watch a sitcom and there would be the family and, 
you know, the kids would come home from school and then, you know, dad would come home from work and they would all sit down and have dinner. I didn't understand why my life wasn't like that. And, you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of lessons early on, you know, and one of the first ones that I learned was, was that I needed to rely on myself, that I couldn't trust others. And it's not a great lesson for an adolescent to learn at such a young age, especially with, with one that had oppositional defiance disorder, right? But it was a lesson that I needed to learn. And, and as it shaped and molded, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into this in your episode, into the, you know, the life of transformation that I live today, what it really looks like is today is the realization that humans will fail me if I place my reliance on them. Right. So if I place unrealistic expectations on the world, I'm, I'm sure to become resentful at the disappointment of it not coming to fruition the way that I had envisioned it. My confusion progressed and it progressed and it progressed and it progressed into um, a lot of like, you know, you shared in my bio, just a lot of self-hatred, a lot of confusion. I was acting out in school. And, you know, throwing desks and getting, you know, the first time I got suspended was in first grade. And I just didn't, I knew that something was wrong with me. I didn't understand what. And I just hoped, I just longed for the moment that it would all come back together. And, you know, you mentioned something that's really powerful. I imagine you as that young kid sitting there watching these sitcoms, wondering why your life can't be like it is on TV, longing to know about your mother and father. And you said that by the time you were, an adolescent, like these behavior problems were there at six years old, you're throwing desks, you had that diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, which is a big label. And, you know, when that gets put on a kid, oftentimes, you know, that really shapes the way that society views that child. By the time you're an adolescent, you're just not trusting people at all. And, you know, so I imagine going through that, what was it? Well, let me ask you this question. So you're, you're in this place where you're not trusting people and that usually gets worse for people. By the time you were out of high school, did you, what? Where were you in terms of mindset, and what type of things were you involved in at that point in time? Yeah, so I dropped out of high school with two weeks left um, to graduation, and my teachers at the time, which it's it's funny, it's it's come full circle. I actually did a did a keynote at my old high school last year, and I'm doing another one this year. Um, actually in two, in two months. And, um, my teachers just said, show up for your finals and we'll graduate. Like that's the coaching that I was getting. And I couldn't, I became so addicted and dependent on narcotics that I couldn't, I couldn't show up. And I ended up getting suspended through, you know, a series of actions. I, I actually assaulted my little brother and my mom who was then divorced from my adopted father threw me out of the house and I didn't think she was serious. She called the police. I got trespassed. And I went into a five or six year period of just the the darkest times I entered into. I was I was addicted to drugs. I was homeless. I was in and out of incarceration. And yeah, that's kind of the the drop off that happened for me. You mentioned, you know, the even even your teachers, you know, who are these uh, probably as close to one could have as mentors given given where you were in your life or like just show up and you couldn't do that. So obviously a lot of self-hatred, as you said, a lot of self-destructive behaviors. But so in this dark period where you're, you know, in your early twenties here and you're homeless and you're doing these drugs, what was the impetus? What was the was was there a moment or was it a series of moments that made you 
start to have that light bulb turn on and things start to change for you? What what was the change agent there? Um, I just get goosebumps. I get goosebumps every time I share this. But it was, I mean, it was a collective, right? It was my adopted mother and my adopted father used to always tell me, my my mom, you know, mainly would say, like, someday you're gonna soar with the eagles. Like some, you know, someday all of these things from your past are gonna become your future, right? Like your your greatest strength in your future. And so I was in county jail for like the second or third time. And my mom had sent me a book, my adopted mother. When I say mom, I'm talking about my, my adopted mother. And she had sent me a book and it was uh, by David Peltzer. And it's a book called A Child Called It. And it's about, you know, he was adopted and he tells his story of confusion and self-hatred and depression like just this really, really confused childhood and confused path. And I remember reading it and going to my, you know, saying to myself in county jail, and obviously I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want to end up in a white coat, but someday that's going to be me. Someday I'm going to do that. And, you know, through a series of more drug addiction and self-affliction, and you know, all of this, I, I ended up, you know, getting arrested again and, and going to prison for two years. And my two-year incarceration, you and I talked about this, you know, off off the air. My two years in prison was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. And I had been removed from like outside circumstances, you know, drugs, alcohol, criminal activity, like all the things that I was doing. I'd been removed before, but it was the period of time in which I was incarcerated this time that was like... I refer to it as like, you know, cooking chili. Like you can heat chili up and it's going to be good. But if you let it sit for a while, it's going to, it's just going to keep getting better. Right. And so what, and I know it's probably a, a horrible metaphor, but it fits for me. And so what happened was I, you know, I had essentially got warmed up a little bit and all the other incarcerations and then I was released. And every time I went in, of course, I had high hopes and I'm like, I'm going to do different this time. My life is going to be better. Da, 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 and I would tell myself all these things, and I truly thought it. And then I would get out, and I would really quickly find that I didn't have the skills to actually change the way that I thought and change the way that I acted. And so, in the in the prison sentence, the aha moment or the realization that there was some kind of change out there came. It was like twenty one or twenty two months into my two year sentence. And, and that's when like everything started to catch up to me. The, the remembering that I read a child called it, I asked my mom to send it, you know, send another copy to me. And then, you know, at this time I was going to church groups in there. I was going to the self-help, you know, classes that they were doing. And it was like 21 or 22. It's pretty hazy. I was on drugs the whole time I was in there, which, you know, may kind of blow some people's minds, but yes, I was under the influence almost the entire time I was incarcerated. And I had this realization, I just got accepted to this long-term drug and alcohol treatment center. And I was terrified at the thought of going, if that makes any sense, because I couldn't stay sober. I couldn't stay abstinent inside of a prison. How was I going to stay sober and abstinent inside of a treatment center, which was out into the world? And so I had this fear and I wasn't sharing it because you know, incarceration is really not the place to share your deepest, darkest, like self-loathing. And just, you don't, you don't want to portray that or come off to the other inmates that way. 
But one morning I woke up, it was the day after I'd got my acceptance letter and, and, and it stated that in two months I was going to be released to this drug and alcohol treatment center. And I woke up and I was full of fear. And the fear was what I just shared with you, that I was about to get released out back out into the world. And my experience has shown me that I don't do well out there. And this thought, and I call it intuition, you can call it God, you can call it the universe, whatever it is you believe in. Like my heart spoke to me and my heart said, this is funny to me still to this day, go to the one place in the library that you've never been. That was the thought that came to me. I had no idea what that meant. So I walk in the library the next morning and I'm standing there. I'm like, where's the one place that I haven't been in the library? And of course, it was the spirituality and self-help section. No one went there. That was like that was the spot that the inmates would go to exchange, you know, whatever illegal activities they were up to. And so I went back there and I was like, okay, so what am I doing here? And I looked at the bookshelf and there was a book. It was a white cover and it was a picture of a man who was in a, a, a red and orange robe. And he had this smile on his face. Like, and I just remember thinking, I want that. So I picked it up and it was a book by the Dalai Lama. And I ran back to my unit and I read half the book that day. That night after taking my sleeping meds, I had a a towel wrapped around my head and, and I was, you know, it was my first attempt at practicing mindfulness techniques. Right. And, uh, they called me, they called me the Buddha for the remainder of my two month sentence. And I had no idea the metaphor that that was going to be in my life. But that was the moment that something came in. I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. I needed to seek something and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, ever since, you know, August 23rd, 2007, which was the day that I was released from prison, like I haven't stopped the path of introspection. I haven't stopped the path of, of seeking more and wanting to be better. And, you know, it's, from a strong foundation of not being scared to go within. I mean, you know, individuals who have the letters behind our names that we do, like you can't, you can't maintain in this work without going within because you're going to come up against your own insecurities. You're going to come up against your own inadequacies. And I just found a love in it. So that was the moment that, uh, that everything changed for me. It was in the maybe five seconds of mental relief that I got that one night when I was trying to meditate, if you will. And uh, I was like, wow, there's going to be more of this. And then, and then the Dalai Lama went on to talk about how there's more of it. The more you practice it, the greater it becomes. And I started to take on this, the realm of spirit and the realm of transformational work in the same way that I used to use drugs and alcohol. I really like the effects produced. And unlike drugs and alcohol, the effect of spiritual practices, the effects of transformational work, the effects of, you know, introspective work, it doesn't wear off and I don't get arrested. I've never been arrested for meditating. I've never been arrested for going to a transformational workshop. You know, I get happier versus when I used to get angrier. I get more honest as when I used to get, you know, more dishonest. So it's, it's really like the counter to the life that I had been living. And I just, you know, I'll save the the rest of your podcast, but you know, it's just, it's the catalyst of which my entire life is designed today. It, it's amazing because it, for you, it was that one book that put it all together. 
And I think that's really powerful. One of the things that I'm hearing in your share, you know, you were, you were so fearful because you couldn't maintain sobriety in prison. How are you going to maintain sobriety when you're out in the world? But I also sense this, this, one of these other things you were afraid of is success and loving yourself before you read that book. So as you began studying, reading, that I'm sure shifted for you. When did you start begin to f- forgive yourself though? Because that's so important in this work. When did that happen? So I did a, I did it. It's funny that we bring this up because I've actually uh, reconnected with this teacher that I'm about to, to talk about. So I obviously, not obviously, but I engaged in 12 step work and, you know, very heavily. And I was seeing a therapist at the time. And this is after, you know, being released from prison and being in, this drug and alcohol treatment center. And it, it was a long process. I would love to get on your, you know, be on your podcast and say like, Oh my God, like I listened to an interview by Oprah and my whole life changed. I love myself. That was not the case for me. It was a long process of digging up and digging up and digging up. And I've done, you know, I've done EMDR. I've done a ton of trauma work. I've done a, you know, $250,000 worth of self-help workshops and transformational workshops. Like I've done a lot of work, but there's one thing that if, you know, if any of your listeners, which is who I'm speaking to are, have, have experience with this, with this self-hatred and this, like, you know, you're so fat, you're so ugly, you're dumb, you're never going to be this or that. Like those thoughts play in your head. I found this ancient practice called metta meditation, which is a loving kindness meditation practice, which really started to shift the way that I felt about myself. And it was so uncomfortable. And it, because it was so foreign to the ways that I had talked to myself before, it was so foreign to the way that I viewed myself before. And it started to shift, but not in this, in the way that you would think it would. Like I wasn't aiming these meditations at myself. I did a six-month practice of metta meditation, this loving-kindness meditation, where I aimed it at my biological parents. And so I had both my biological picture of my biological father and a picture of my biological mother on my meditation, um, my little sanctuary area. And every morning for six months, and I'm not exaggerating this, every morning for six months, I would get up, I would look at them both, and I would go, you did the best that you could with what you had. I thank you for the life you provided every day for six months. And after about four months into this practice, the hatred, I just got goosebumps again, the hatred started to go away and it began to be replaced by compassion. And I started to see my biological family, my biological parents as suffering individuals that truly did the best they could with what they had. And what they had, I'm sure, was a mind very similar to mine. And look what they did. They gave me life, the greatest thing that they ever could. And so then it was a process of starting. So the long answer to your short question is once I learned to start to love other people and start to forgive other people, that's when I, that's when I started to, to reap the benefits of learning how to love myself and forgive myself. Because I had spent my entire life aiming my self-hatred onto the world. 
that when I started to try to aim love and compassion onto the world, that's when it started to come back a little. And there was one, yeah, there was one moment that shifted it all for me and, and kind of shot it off, but we'll save that. We'll save that. Well, I want to ask just very briefly for those who are not familiar with meta meditation, we know there's many different forms of meditation. Talk to us for a couple of minutes, Mark, about what that is. So it's a, it's a loving kindness meditation. So there's, there's a ton of, a ton of forms of it that you can do. There's multiple variations. And, you know, if you're not familiar with it, I'll do, you know, you can edit this out if you want, Richard, but I'll do um, a couple name drops. There's a woman named Sharon Salzberg and another woman named Tara Brock, who are two of my favorite practitioners of this form of meditation. But the, the form that I used was, it's called RAIN and Tara Brock does this meditation. And so you basically, you not basically, you repeat phrases to yourself, right? So you are worthy. You are lovable. You are forgiven. And you just repeat them. And so versus in a traditional meditation where you would use your, your heart or your breath as an anchor, in metta meditation, you use phrases as an anchor. And, and it was super helpful and beneficial for me due to the, how loud my mind was when I originally started meditating. So every time my, the monkeys in my mind would start throwing fruit, or dancing in my head, I would go back to the anchored phrases. You are lovable. You are forgiven. You are worthy. And I would repeat them and I would repeat them and I would repeat them and I would repeat them. And, you know, for those of you who are going to try this, it's not going to happen. You want, like, you're not going to have some profound experience in one. It's a practice. And that's why they call meditation a practice. It's a it's a practice, and like I said, I didn't start to experience any change in perspective for my biological parents until about four months into this practice. And so that's you know it's a series of phrases, and it's it's what it really is. And I've devoted my my life work to, if you will, it's retraining your brain in the way that you speak to yourself. And when you retrain your brain into the way that you into the way that you speak to yourself, you can retrain your brain into the way that you view others in the world and the way that you view others in the world. Absolutely right. And I wanted to ask you, you said that in about four months you had this shift where you started viewing your biological parents differently. Did you ever find them? I know that's something that was so important to you when you were young. Did you ever find them and connect with them? Yeah, I know. Um, I know both of my biological parents. Um, I've sat you know, knee to knee with both of them two times each. Um, since being in recovery, the first time was to make amends for some of my actions, which was a huge part of my self forgiveness, um, the amends process and rectifying the, the, the damage that I caused into the world. And it still is to this day when I make mistakes, I, I attempt to rectify my mistakes. And the second time that I sat knee to knee to them was to ask them questions. And I asked some really difficult questions and I got some really confusing answers that didn't line up with, you know, sitting with each of them. And it was a real process, you know, using this, this meditation practice and all of the work that I had done introspectively to sit down with them and to not view their lies and to not view the confusion and to not hear their um, reflection of questions. But to really view them as I had been viewing them in my meditation, as I had been viewing them as a suffering human doing the best that they can with what they have, 
And so, yes, I do know both of them. I have cut a relationship off with my biological mother. I, I, the last time that I talked to her, I told her that I wasn't interested in, in, in pursuing any, any further connection with her. And that was a, an extremely powerful uh, move of advocation for myself. And she totally embraced it. We do the only communication that we have is I text her every Halloween on her birthday. And sometimes she texts me on my birthday, which is three days later. And some years she doesn't. And whether she does or doesn't, doesn't matter to me. I just acknowledge her every year on her birthday for giving me life. And I say, thank you so much for bringing me into this world and all the lessons that you taught me. My biological father, we have a text message relationship and I've set clear boundaries with him. He still to this day um, causes me a lot of anguish at times, the way that he shows up in my life. And, uh, you know, the latest interaction was him asking me to pay his rent. And then I said, no. I told you that the only help, help that I was willing to give you was to send you to a drug and alcohol treatment center. If you chose help, I would do anything to provide what was so freely given to me, to you. And, um, you know, three days or maybe a week after he had asked me for that rent money, he sent my, my sister a picture of some narcotics that he had, he had acquired. Mm. And even though I had questioned my decision to send my father some money, um, I was like, well, maybe I should, maybe that's, but, but at the same time, I, I, had, I had set the boundary and I needed to, I needed to fulfill on it. And so I do have, I do know both of them. Uh, I found them, sought them out. And, uh, and to be quite honest and authentic, I, I choose to not further a relationship with them to prevent myself from further suffering. I understand. And I applaud you for your courage in sharing what you just shared with us, with everything that you shared with the audience listening to this. So thank you for your authenticity, Mark. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we get some time to talk about this because this is really exciting work that you're doing. I know that you have dedicated yourself to helping people who have been through the prison system um, so that they have outcomes like you had outcome, like your outcome. Uh, talk to us about that work that you're doing because I think it's so important. Yeah. So I am, uh, now I'm getting excited. Now I'm smiling. Uh, my posture changed because you, I'm not sure if you guys are going to be able to see me or not in the video that's recorded. But so I learned probably three years into this, you know, this realm of transformation, this transformational work that I embarked on, which is a lifestyle. It's a chosen, a chosen lifestyle. And 
I, I learned about three years in that every action or inaction was a manifestation of my thoughts. And anytime, so I'm going to share this, this, this story to really affirm. So the, the shifting point in my life, in the realm of transformation in the life that I live today, I was about three years sober. I had started to go to college. And I started online because I didn't think I was intelligent and I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to do anything stupid that would be seen by my peers and allow them an opportunity to make fun of me. Turns out I'm really intelligent and I was getting a 4.0 online and was challenged by one of my mentors to go face to face and did really well there as well. And so I was going, I was going to face to face school for face, I call it face to face school because there's so many, so much online now. I was going to the face-to-face school for my bachelor's degree in human services. And I'd been reading a book by Tony Robbins and it was Awaken the Giant Within. And I he kept he mentioned mentorship in this one chapter. And I didn't know what that meant. But I went to class the following weekend in search of a mentor. And and I met one of my professors who was kind of he was bold and big and just boisterous and he, he had authority when he spoke and he was super intelligent and he just, he just had connections. And so whatever my motives were, I walked up to him and said, Hey, we'd be my mentor. He said, absolutely. He said, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know. I want to break out into the field of working in human services. And at this time I was painting and drywalling because in my mind, that was all I was ever going to be able to do just due to my felony convictions and the past that I lived. He's like, absolutely. He's like, what do you want to do? And I told him my story. And he's like, well, there's a, a position open to work with runaway and homeless youth. I can get you an interview. That's the best that I can do. And I was like, okay, that'd be, I mean, that would be amazing. And that wasn't my motive. And of course, I think it was my motive. I didn't know what my motive was, but it was, it was to get, you know, kind of pushed up the staircase a little bit. And so I got an interview. A bunch of people told me that I would never get it. I landed the job. But then I found out that they didn't have any restrictions. They had some restrictions on felony convictions, but I had passed them. I worked there for about six years and I wanted more. And so there was uh, some positions that opened up within the state of New Hampshire at the youth detention center. And so I applied. And I mean, I had more professionals, peers around me tell me that I would never get these positions than I could shake a stick at. And I said, you know what, maybe I won't get the position, but what I can tell you is my mind is already telling me that I can't do it. And I've already done some things that my mind told me that I couldn't do that actually happened. So I want to see. And so I applied, I got an interview, I nailed the interview, I got a second interview, I crushed the second interview. And I was one of the first felons to be hired by the state of New Hampshire. And it was a moment for me, right? And you, you know, for you, you, you know, your guests that are listening, you can Google the, uh, the article that was written about me uh, in, in receiving this job and it's convicted burglar counsels youth. And it was one of the proudest moments of my life. And I know it sounds kind of like, what? Why would that be the proudest moment? Because I had, it was, it was printed front page on the Sunday news and like the biggest paper in New Hampshire, which isn't that big you know, relatively speaking, because New Hampshire is small, but it was a big paper. You know, a a lot of people read this paper, like 900,000 or something. I did the stats after it was released. I was like, oh God, 900,000 people know. And my mind said, see, you're never going to change. See, this is the way that it's always going to be. 
you should quit, you know, quit your job, go back to what you were doing. And I was like, no, you know, and I just have been in this process of like, no mind, that's not what I'm going to do. And I went into work that Sunday and at the bubble, and it was a, it was a detention center. So it was, you know, it was essentially prison for youth that had, had been convicted of crimes. And so the bubble went to buzz me in and, and the woman in the bubble you know, go says to me, she goes, Mark, are you really going to go into work today? And I go, yeah, why? And she's like, did you see the union leader? I'm like, yeah, they could have done a better job of highlighting who I am now. And she, she buzzed me in and I went into work with my shoulders high and everyone commented on it and everyone looked at me and, you know, it was kind of like, wow, here's this guy, you know? And, and I was just so proud and, and, and just a vision for what a, rehabilitated man or woman could do. Here I am with the same badge, the same credentials, actually higher credentials than a lot of the other officers in this institution because, you know, I had had my bachelor's degree at this time and I was working on my master's and um, I was just so proud. And so as it progressed and as it progressed and I, you know, got licensed and started practicing therapy and working with other individuals and started working with individuals that were reintegrating back into society in a, in a drug and alcohol treatment center that I was working at. I just became very, very passionate for advocating for the prison system and those that are, that are reintegrating back into society and wanted to really get loud in the sense that it doesn't matter where you came from. You can do anything. I'm a prime example. I was allowed to, I was granted access to go back into the prison three years after being released to volunteer. Unheard of. Now, the disclaimer that I want to give for anyone listening is you're going to have to jump through a lot more hoops than most individuals. And do you know why these hoops were put in place? Is because society doesn't think you're going to jump through them. But when you tell yourself that you can do anything, you can do anything. It's been my experience. And I get super fired up about it. And the work that I do today is, um, you know, Richard, I, I started, uh, started a coaching practice in which I implement, you know, positive psychology teachings and other teachings that I've learned throughout the years into a practice of empowering individuals to disbelieve their minds and take actions based off what it is that they actually want to achieve. And day after day, I just had an experience, uh, three days ago on a coaching call with a client with some of the, most severe self-hatred I've experienced taking action in seeking a mentor in which she thought this individual was going to tell her to, to get bent, right? And the individual actually stated, I have two projects that I would love your help on. And it's just, she, you know, she texted me and she was so excited. And it was like, yeah, I'm telling you, like, there's more of this. There's more of this. And so, yeah, I'm really... There's a couple, you know, there's a, you, you know, the work that I'm doing, there's a few directions that I could go with this, but I'm, I'm really, and I want to share this and I, and I share this whenever I get the opportunity. I want to thank New Hampshire State Prison and the incarceration system for rehabilitating me. And I know it doesn't get said a lot and I'm actually working on uh, a TEDx in which I'm going to present this on stage is there's one piece at the end of prison. And I'm not going to say that prison rehabilitated me, but the whole system, the system as a whole did. There was one piece at the end of prison. I had to get, I was mandated to get my GED before they would parole me out. Had they not mandated me to get my GED, 
I don't know if I'd be here today. I don't know if I would. I would still be, I would still be painting and drywalling, doing the same thing that I was doing with the same limiting beliefs. I'm sure of it. They mandated that I get my GED. I got my GED. It was one of the proudest moments of my life that I had finally completed something. My mom, you know, my biological mom or my, uh, my adoptive mother and my adoptive father were so proud of me. And in that dark time that I hit after incarceration, you know, in, in painting and drywalling where I was like, I want to do something else. I had the, the only thing that could get me to do something else. Had I not had a GED, I would have been forced to continue the same, the same path that I was leading. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And there's so much to unpack in, in everything that you two shared. <laughs> I, I think that your advocacy work is, is so powerful. Your story is so powerful. Um, but I want to talk about what's coming next. So talk to us about what you're working on right now. I know you said you have a TEDx coming. What are some other ways that Mark Crandall is making the world a better place right now? So I'm just getting loud. I mean, I have a quote on, you know, on the back of my t-shirts and, and, and all the stuff that I do. And that is the way that you speak to yourself is the way that you show up in the world. So I'm really getting loud in, in sharing a message of you can change the way that you talk to yourself. And specifically around victims of trauma, and differentiating the, the line between being a victim, which I am. I'm a victim of circumstances. I had things happen to me in my past, which placed me in the role of a victim. I was victim of circumstances. But there's a line between that and playing the victim. So playing the victim is the separation of what happened to me in the story that I've created around what my future is going to be like as a result of what happened. And so that's the work that I do. Those are the coaching clients that I take on. Those are the individuals that I'm so passionate to work with. Because when you can retrain the brain and you can empower an individual to go beyond the lies that they've been telling themselves for years and years and years about who they are based off of what happened to them, they become extraordinary individuals. And not to name drop, but I have a, a good friend of mine, Carolyn, whose past is very, very similar to mine and future is very, very similar to mine as a result of engaging in and carrying the same message that I do. And so that's, that's the work that I'm doing. I have I've got three, three talks dialed in already for the coming year, the first four months of this year that are all, that are all around the way that you speak to yourself and really taking a look at how you talk to yourself, even at the gym. Oh my gosh, you're fat. No, no, I'm not fat. Right. And and just the way that limiting beliefs play into your life based off of the stories that you tell yourself. So that's the the work that I do is working with in in the re-release of Eulogy of Childhood Memories, my first book, which I shared with you. I'm in a, I'm I'm in a conundrum, just a reflection point of, do I change the name and the title and re-release the book anew? Or do I change the just the cover and re, and just re-release the book? But I feel like I need to really re-release the book because it's a separate entity. So in the first book, I told my story, and then at the end, it's kind of a and Mark lived happily ever after because I had so much fear into getting this story out into the world, and it's got great responses, right? Like you know, individuals that have read it have loved it, and they're like, I can't, I can't believe you didn't die at the end. And, you know, all of these, these things that have come. But what I did 
was I added 20,000 new words to this book in which I walk individuals that are victims of trauma through a series of actions that they take as, as these, you know, this 20,000 word plays out a series of actions that they can take that anyone can take to overcome a victim mentality. And I use my own experience. I use my own trauma that's told in, in the first section of the book. And I, and I just share how I walk through it and the, the perspective shift and the practices that I engaged in. And I challenge the readers to do exercises. And, and so that's what I'm getting loud about is, is that, you know, trauma isn't something that, that stays with you your entire life, right? The, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts around the trauma, what happened happened. And it's going to be there. But the realization that I had is everything that happened has already happened. But yet I had been spending every day as if it was happening over and over and over again. And so that was the main shift. And that was the main, um, that's the work that I do. I've, de- I mean, I've devoted my life to it. And I go wherever I'm called to share authentically and vulnerably. And you know, I shared with you, I went to the state house in New Hampshire and, and I spoke at the house and I gave this long talk about it was on a bill called check the box. And it was, they were voting as to whether or not to ban that felons had to check. Yes. I'm a felon on their job application. And I gave what, what for me and my colleagues said was a brilliant talk. And right at the end of it, when I was losing them and they weren't paying attention to me and I said, yeah, my name's Mark Crandall, you know, LMSW LCDC and, uh, and I'm a felon. And their heads came up and they're like, what? No way. This is like, no. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, you know, I just wanted to share that with you. I'm a felon. And what that means is I have felony convictions. I no longer live the life of a felon. Amazing. Yeah. If we're going to fully rehabilitate people, we need to embrace the aspect of rehabilitation and embrace individuals that are coming back out into society. And that's a longer, I mean, that's a six hour and I know you get (laughs) fired up about it too. So we could talk for days on that. So, uh, it's, uh, it is amazing. And I think your story is so powerful. I, I want to very quickly give you the opportunity to talk about purpose chasers podcast before we, we wrap this up because we're close on time here. Absolutely. So purpose chasers podcast was an idea that I had. It was something that my mind told me that I couldn't do. And so I had no clue what I was doing. So I sought mentors and followed some individuals and I started a podcast and I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts. I still to this day listen to some podcasts, some higher level podcasts on transformation and business development. And, you know, there's probably similar podcasts that you listen to, right? So, but the podcast that I wanted to create was a podcast that was going to interrupt some of the patterns of individuals that weren't familiar with transformation and weren't familiar with this life that I've been, uh, that I've benefited so greatly from. I wanted to interrupt their nine to five life and offer them a little glimmer of hope. And so Purpose Chasers podcast came up and it was to provide insights into living extraordinarily, right? So I just wanted to drop little nuggets for individuals that had no clue that there was this other way of life out there and talk to individuals such as yourself on what was, you know, so how are you living your life before you came to chase purpose, right? Because I call myself, I am a purpose chaser. I'm chasing purpose. I don't do the work that I do for the money. You know, money is a byproduct of the work that I do, but I don't do it for the money. I do this because it's my calling in life. Because when David Peltzer wrote that book, he touched my life and he 
basically tagged me, said, tag Mark, you're it. And it's not a hobby for me. I chase this every single day. I'm up early. I work my butt off, you know, just very similar to you. And so I wanted to give individuals some insight into what it was like before people were living a life of purpose, when the transition happened, how the shift in their mind happened, and everything that they've gone up against to continue to fulfill on the purpose that they're chasing. And the responses that I've received are, it's just, it's epic. It's been, you know, it's been released now for, we're in the fourth month and I'm, I'm touching lives. I have, and just give you an example and then, I'll, then we'll get off purpose chasers. My neighbor who lives like three houses down from me that I don't know, listens to my podcast and loves it. And he's working to retirement. You know, he's just working a job to, to retire. He's like, I love it. I wish I could do that. And I reply to him back on Facebook. I'm like, you can do that, man. And let my let me send you a copy of my book and I'll show you that you can do anything that you put your mind to. So that's why I started it. It wasn't um, and you know, as you know, some of your listeners do, it's easy to get caught up in stats and how many downloads I get and how many how much social media engagement that I get. And then I gotta remind myself of why I did it. Because there's one individual on their way to work that's going to listen to my podcast. It's going to shift their life, and they're going to event, you know, inevitably begin to chase purpose and, and shift humanity as a whole. I love it. But that's why I started it. So, Amen. And we'll we'll have links to all of these things you've mentioned throughout our discussion in the Daily Helping app and the show notes as well at thedailyhelping.com. Mark, uh, we're at time, but this has been a powerful and amazing discussion. I knew that it would be, and I'm so grateful that you and I connected. As you know, I like to wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our episode together today? So the most important thing that I can that I would offer and and the message that I want to leave to the world is that you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are not your feelings. Your thoughts are things that appear in your mind and your feelings are a combination of you believing your thoughts, right? So there's no such thing as feeling outside of attachment to thoughts. So you're not your thoughts. You can achieve anything in this life that you can put your mind to. And that is why I've gotten loud. And that's why I continue to do things that people say that I can't. And I continue to take actions and do things that my mind tells me that I can't just to continue to show myself that I can. I love so it. That's what I would say to you. You can, you can achieve anything. And as cliche as that sounds, it's so true. <laughs> it's very true. Mark, where can people find you? Uh, markcrandall.net. That's my, you know, my website. All my socials on there. My podcast is on there. Everything that I'm doing is on there. Perfect. Well, we'll, as I said, we'll link to all that good stuff so that people can find you. Mark, I've enjoyed this discussion and I applaud you for your courage and for what you've accomplished and how you're continuing to help others. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. And I want to thank and honor each and every one of you who chose to listen into today's episode. Thanks again. And if you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 